This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words arise from and return to silence, and may they point to what is true and real. I wanted to speak about uh, or continue what I had started speaking about on Wednesday. I, I gave a talk on the power of bow, as in bowing, as in prostration. And um, and I was speaking about it in terms, partly in terms of devotion. And I've just been thinking a little bit more about that because of everything that is going on in the world, everything that seems awry with the world. Um, I think this is a, a good time uh, to to dig deep and look for or, or make use of some of the tools that Buddhism offers to, um, to care for this world and for ourselves in, in the midst of it. And <clears throat> I, I was saying a few days ago, you know, that in general, we're not a, a, a devotional or a reverential culture. But I do think that when we look at the world and when we look at the, the conflict that we have in the world, that really all of it arises from separation. From this uh, false sense of separation. And so, as I have um, said before, if somebody was to ask me if I could describe Buddhism, using no technical terms, what I would say is it's about getting close. Or it's about seeing that that distance does not exist in reality. And I think bowing, because of what it is and because of what it expresses and because it engages the whole body, um, is a is a really nice entry point you know, into that closeness. As you know, in Zen we say, you know, you just eat, you just walk, you just sit, you just cook, you just um, wash your dishes afterwards. And that, what's implied in that just is that unity, is that intimacy, is that closing of that gap. And that is very easy to say and not so easy to do when the mind is moving very fast. And so a good deal of practice is slowing down. Slowing down enough to locate ourselves in space and to also let go of that location to let go of that separation and just do what we're doing. 
somebody sent me a, um, an article about a man who, and I haven't finished it, but um, about a man who lost all memory. He does not remember anything from a few, a few seconds ago all the way to the time when he was born. So he essentially, his, his entire past has been erased. But every moment, the past is erased as well. So the moment that he enters into this next moment, which in Buddhism is, is some infinitesimal amount of time, a moment is very, very short. I mean, his, his wife says he blinks and already it's a new life for him. And what I was struck by is we speak of that in terms of freedom and wakefulness and um, in that intimacy. And for him, it seems like it has been uh, an absolute hell because he doesn't know who he is or who anybody is. And so this, this freshness is actually a burden for him. And it just made me think of the necessity of both sides, right? The fact that we do need to know who we are. I've spoken of this many times before. You need to know where you end and I begin. And we do need to, in order to navigate the world, know past from present, from future. And also to be truly liberated, we need to um, be free of past, present, and future. And I was thinking that in a moment of full prostration, whole body and mind, the whole universe prostrating, that is what is happening. You're not prostrating to anything. There is no one prostrating. There is just that movement into emptiness, if we need to describe it in some way. And I've just been reflecting on why that um, constant re-realization, re I guess, that, that seeing again of that truth is so important because in separation is conflict, in separation is suffering. You know, the gap between this is and I want, that's the place where suffering blooms. It is also the place of practice. It is where we understand, oh, there's a difference in my mind between this and this. The teachings are telling me there is no difference fundamentally, so how do I close that gap? How do I see that that gap does not exist? That that well-known saying of Zen, that a hair's breadth of difference is as the distance between heaven and earth is true. That the moment we separate by, by, by this much, it's already the distance between heaven and earth, but that that separation does not actually exist on a fundamental level. At the same time, 
we have to pay the bills. We have to take care of this body. Some people need to raise children, go to work. And so you also need to be a body in this larger body that is the world. And as I said, you, as I said, you need that, um, that sense of discreteness. It reminds me of that, that um, koan, you know, all things return to the one. What does the one return to? Because that has both sides. And so returning to devotion, you know, if, you, if we think of devotion as, as reverence, as respect, as um, commitment, as wholeheartedness, as sincerity, then I think that wish, you know, that vow, that aspiration to close that gap or to be, to be free is, is contained in devotion. And we normally think of having devotion for those things that are, that are somewhat, you know, special or unique. But of course, again, fundamentally, everything is unique. And uh, an unusual, but I think it is an example of devotion, was this, this story I read some years ago, that Jack Cornfield um, was working with what he calls wisdom resolutions. And so as he takes his seat, you know, he settles, he gets quiet. And then he brings to mind, he invokes a particular phrase that is his intent for that period of zazen, that period of meditation. And it was somewhat, it was early on in his practice and he was doing a retreat. And um, he took his seat and said in his mind, may I have a clear realization of emptiness. But he used the word uh, in Pali, and instead of, and he got confused. So instead of saying shunyata, he said anika or anicca, which is actually the word for impermanence. But he didn't know that. So he thought he had sat down and he was wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly saying, may I um, have insight into emptiness. And then he continues, you know, so he sits and he does this, you know, for a few periods or a few days. And at one point he has this deep, clear realization into impermanence. He was confused. Reality was not confused. Reality knew exactly what was needed. And through the, I would say, through the power of his devotion, his aspiration, his zeal, he was able to realize the thing he was really asking for without even knowing. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? So we don't even need to know intellectually that what we're doing is having devotion. It, it really is a, 
an attitude, I was going to say of mind, but if, if we take mind to be the whole thing, then yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's an attitude of, of being. It's a whole turning in a perhaps different direction, given that, that normally we don't tend to see the world like this. You know, so we're, we're such a throwaway culture in general, right? We, we, we see human beings as supreme and we take from reality, from the world, what we think is ours and what we need to fulfill our desires and to have the life that we want to have. I've been thinking about this so much because I'm in a, in a beautiful place, but that is also, you know, very much a resort place, a vacation place, a party place. And um, it's painful to, to see the, the, I don't know how much of it is willful disregard and how much of it is just um, blindness, you know, not seeing how much we take, how much we take that has absolutely no relationship to what we give back, certainly to the planet. And how quickly, how easily we discard what we think no longer serves us. And of course, this is just one example. I mean, I could go almost anywhere in the world and I would see the same, we would see the same. And so you could say that having a, a, a devotional attitude is the opposite of that. It doesn't necessarily mean you go to church and you, uh, you know, prostrate yourself in front of a crucifix or do 108 or 100,000 prostrations in front of the Buddha. It includes that, it could include that. But I think of it more, more generally as, as an attitude of, of deep care and of not wanting to chop up the world in little bits and to say, well, this is important and this isn't. This deserves my attention and my regard and this doesn't. But that that plastic bottle, endless, endless plastic bottles that we use here because you can't drink the water from the tap, that somebody can say this, this came from somewhere and is going to end up somewhere. And, and how do I create my life to take that into account, to think about that? Because we have to, we have to, and we're seeing that, right, more and more. That when we, you know, take off a piece of clothing, that how we fold it, how we set it down, you know, it doesn't have to be obsessive, but that somebody made that piece of clothing many someones with lives and perhaps children, certainly histories, desires of their own. And that all of that is helping in this moment to support me, to serve me. So how do I serve it in return? To me, that's really devotion. How do I serve it in return? In the, in the particular way that each of us might choose to do that, some people will do it through very overt environmental work. Some people will do it with social action. 
Some people will do it simply in their in their sphere, in their in their own Buddha field, their own sphere of influence. I've spoken not for some time now, but I've spoken before about, you know, when my brother died 13 years ago now, the man who took care of his funeral, I will never forget him uh, because of the way he did his job. I mean, he's in charge of a, of a funeral home. He's essentially a funeral director. And he was one of the most present, most loving, I would say, even though it's a complete stranger to him, most loving human beings I have ever encountered. He knew what somebody in that situation goes through in general terms, right? The distress, the sadness, etc. And he had made it his life, his calling to do everything in his power to serve in that moment. And he's not Buddhist, he's, he's Christian. And uh, when we would do the whole cremation part, you know, which we would do as part of funerals at the monastery, I think in the beginning he was a little weirded out by it because normally people who have their, their relatives be cremated, they just deliver them and then they leave. They don't want to be there. <laughs> they don't want to be witness. To it. They certainly don't want to participate and press the button. And we Buddhists, go right in there when it, when it comes to death. So, so we were right in there, not just for my brother, which I, I was there and I did press the button, but other funerals that we had at the monastery. And we do a whole service right there at the crematory. This is the, the, the body, you know, going on to this, its next passage, its next life. We don't want to miss that. So, you know, but even that, he, he, he very quickly recovered and said, of course, he, it was, I think it was even a little against regulations, but he figured it out so that we could, we could do it. And I will never forget him, you know, really the way that he was with me. And I could tell that it wasn't about me, that this is how he met every single person, every client. But you never had the, the sense that you were a client that he was trying certainly to sell you anything. He was trying to make this difficult time a little bit easier. Pretty extraordinary human being. And so, you know, what it is, what shape it takes, I think is much less important as, as that mind, as that being of devotion. And so when I think of what it means you know, to live a life of practice, really we could take away everything, right? We could take away the Buddha statues, we could take away the vows, we could take away 
the chanting, you know, that we do. We could even take away zazen. It would be very sad, but we could take it away. And what would be left, of course, would still be this body and mind. And what would be left would be that desire to be fully in this life. In this life, right? Not just through it, seeing, you know, what, what, what we can uh, benefit from, but fully in it, participating and serving, giving back. That it, in fact, this way of being, at a certain point, I think, I think, <clears throat> becomes an imperative. Because when you do see that you are responsible for the whole thing because you are the whole thing, then it makes it harder to, I guess, to just coast. I guess it's still possible. It's always possible to, to go back to sleep, but it, it becomes harder. So in one sense, you know, I've, <laughs> I've said, practice really messes you up because all the stuff that you, that you kind of mindlessly enjoyed before, it gets harder and harder to do that. And I think that's a good thing. So, you know, if you're, if you're kind of at the edge of practice, beginning practice, get, get all the fun, all the, <laughs> all, all the, all the, the wastefulness out of the way <laughs> and then turn wholeheartedly to it so that you won't feel deprived. And then I hope that it's actually not a burden, you know, that, that, that taking responsibility for the whole thing, being responsible for the whole thing really just means being full in your life, which is what I already said. And it doesn't mean you do it perfectly. And it, and it doesn't mean you take care of everything because you can't. There being 24 hours in the day, how do you use them? As Master Zhao Zhao said, instead of being used by them. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.